Turn your Bibles to Psalm chapter 40. Psalm chapter 40. For the next few weeks, we'll be going through a few texts in the Old Testament, um, taking a break from Hebrews for the month of December, um, and looking at some of the texts that Hebrews talks about, some of the texts that Hebrews references, and this is one of those. Psalm 40, we read it in chapter 10, we read particularly verses in chapter 10 of Hebrews, we read particularly verses 6 through 9, where the uh, author of Hebrews explains that Jesus is the speaker, at least in a portion of Psalm 40. So, as we turn there together, uh, Psalm 40, let's prepare our minds a little bit. And just take a deep breath. I don't know if you do that before you study your Bible, but you ought to. Just take a deep breath. Breathe and remind yourself that there is much more beyond yourself. So... Let's read together Psalm 40. We're going to read all, the whole book, the whole thing. Psalm chapter 40. The heading is to the choir master, a psalm of David. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God, many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. In sacrifice and offerings you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required, but then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips. As you know, O Lord, I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love, your faithfulness from the great congregation. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me and I cannot see. There are more than the hairs. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame 
and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life and let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha, aha. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. God add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. This is a weird psalm. It's a weird psalm because the author of Hebrews made it weird. You see, if you read this psalm straight through at first glance, you'd go, David. This is David. Inclined to me, hear my cry. You've got this plea here in verses 1 through 3 that he would incline and he heard my cry and he put a new song in my mouth to change my heart. Yay! Then you've got this 4 through 5 where he says, Blessed is the man who takes refuge in the Lord, who makes his trust in the Lord. God has made wondrous deeds and multiplied his wondrous deeds to me. Notice this is all first person. He's saying, I did these things. These things are done to me, for me. Then verse 6 gets a little weird and sacrifice an offering you haven't done, but you made a body for me. Okay, so David's getting a little weird. And then in verse 9, you've got glad news. I haven't hid any of the gospel. 9 through 10, I haven't heard, I haven't hid any of the gospel from you. And then as for you, you get this typical, God is faithful. My enemies are surrounding me in verses 11 through 13. And then this call for deliverance in verses 12. I mean, in verses 13 through 15. And then in verse 16 and 17, you've got the conclusion. I am poor and needy, but you are great God. Right? You got this, this conclusion. And at first glance, when you read through this, it seems like it's a cry from us. It's our cry to God. And this makes sense, right? Everyone can relate to this. I mean, read, read it. Just look at it. You can see these, these sound like normal things that we pray. These are normal. They're normal. They're, my enemies encompass around me. How many, all of us have felt surrounded by enemies. Lord, you don't delight in sacrifices, but you gave me a body to surrender to you. You know, you know, all of us can relate to that. And Lord, I haven't hidden the gospel. It's been, I've been, it's been on my tongue. It's been on my lips. I've been exploding with it. Lord, I've been faithful to share your gospel. Please be with me. Stay with me for that. Bless me for it. Please. This is, this is normal language. And then the author of Hebrews goes and throws a monkey wrench at us and hits us square in the face and says, this isn't you. This is Jesus. And we go, oh. And so right from the outset, Charles Spurgeon puts it this way. He asks the question, is this psalm about people? He says, David and the like. Is this song about David and the like? Is this his his proclamation? Or is this song about Jesus? And his answer, as any good theologian would tell you, is yes. 
Yes. But it is only natural that the sun eclipse tiny stars. So as we look through this text, as we dive through, I want you to, to understand this is a cry from David to the Lord that we can relate to, that we can grab a hold of, that we ourselves can make. And these are the words of our Savior. This is the voice of our Lord who is saying, I am here. I am present. So from the outset, let's grasp hold of this. Jesus is real. I mean that in two senses. Like he had flesh and blood. He had skin. He's real. And he's real. As in not distant, fake, false. He's real. He's emotional. He is a human. Yes, he's fully God. But don't lose the fact that fully God became fully man. And that means that in those dark nights when you're going, Lord, help! When the psalmist says, He inclined and heard my cry, Jesus is going, By the way, same for me. Same for me. So, he says here, verse 1 through 3, we can kind of look at this as an introduction to the psalm. Introduction to the psalm here. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. First note, your job. Wait. To wait. This is the most frustrating job on the planet. It's the most frustrating job for us. Wait. You have no idea how many times I have prayed, Lord, whatever. Lord, whatever it is. I do this. Do this, Lord. Whatever it is. And his response is wait. Then I wait and I wait and I wait and he hasn't even told me yes or no. Wait. So the psalmist says, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me. So get this, this this is, I'm waiting for God's response, and he bends down to me. My voice is not loud enough to reach him. My praises are not excellent enough to garner his attention. My work is not beautiful enough. My hands are not strong enough. My legs don't go Far enough, I can't reach him. He inclines to me. He inclines to me. God takes the initiative to come to me. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock making my steps secure. So God comes down to me and grabs me from the pit, the miry bog, sin, death, 
despair, whatever. He grabs me from it and pulls me up. And note what he does. He sets my feet upon a rock. Now, the rock, obviously, Jesus. The salvation, the cornerstone, the rock of salvation. He sets my feet upon the rock and I stand on the rock. Did you notice what he does not do? He does not destroy the miry ball. He doesn't even take me somewhere else. He takes me out of the bog and sets me above it. On the rock. I am no longer drowning in the bog. I am no longer stuck in the pit. He has drawn me out of the pit and set my feet upon what other passages will call a firm foundation. He sets my feet upon a rock, setting me above trouble. Setting me above trouble. And not only that, but making my steps through the trouble secure. So I will not fall to the trouble. Verse 3. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. God comes down and climbs himself to us, hears our cry, draws us up from the pit of destruction, sin, despair, draws us out of it, sets us on a rock, gives us a path that is secure, and then changes our hearts to put a new song in our mouth. Because as you know, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. There is no more true statement. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Jesus comes into your life, changes your heart, and gives you a new song. And that new song is contrary to the bog beneath. It is different. And he says, a new song of praise to our God. And we could say that this is the title of the new song. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Note, it does not say all. This is a hymn of salvation. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Not all will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. The psalmist is a realist. Jesus is a realist. And he understands that there are going to be those who don't believe. And yet the gospel rings true constantly over and over and over. Many will see and hear and trust that the Lord is good. and They will fear they will put their trust in him. So there's your introduction. This is the introduction. The Lord inclines to us, pulls us up out of the pit, sets us on a rock, making our steps secure, puts a new song in our mouths, and many are going to hear and see. Did you notice what you did in that passage? Wait. That was your job. Wait, and then at the end, you get to sing. Isn't it great? 
Isn't it great to know that God doesn't give us a whole ton of work to do to earn salvation? He just says, wait, and guess what? You get to sing at the end of it. Yay! If you don't like singing too bad, it's in the Bible, you have to do it. Sing. It's in there. If you don't like it, you should learn, because we're going to do it a lot. You wait patiently on the Lord. He drew me up. I didn't. He set me on a rock. I didn't set myself there. He set me above trouble. I didn't do that myself. And he changed my heart. And I get to sing. Verses 4 through 5 here. He goes on and says, Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, who, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. So happy is the one, that's what blessed means, by the way. Happy is the one who makes his trust the Lord, who puts his Trust in the Lord who, who is resting in Yahweh. Happy is that one who will trust in the Lord. And of course that one's happy because that one has been driven, taken above trouble, has been drawn from the pit, has been lifted, has been put on a secure rock, and has a song. That one's happy. Yes, of course he's happy because that's the reality he lives in because he's trusted in the Lord. And if you trust in the Lord for salvation, there is what Paul calls peace that passes understanding, what James calls joy unsurpassable, what John calls, uh, what John doesn't even call it, he just models it for us as overwhelming uh, response to God falling on his face and standing up weeping loudly for joy. This is beautiful. Blessed is that man. Yes, blessed is that man. Happy is that man. I love to talk to non-Christians about happiness. Because it doesn't take long before I look at them and go, yeah, but I'm happier than you are. It doesn't take long. Even if they're faking it. And they're really good at faking it. I eventually can look at them and go, yeah, but I'm happier than you are. I've got all these things. Everything in the world is great for me. I make this much money. I'm incredible. I fly jets. I'm amazing. I have all these things. Yeah, but I'm happy. And that kind of trumps all your things, right? So, happy is the man who makes his trust in the Lord, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. Our Lord knew this. And on earth, he makes his, his happiness the Lord. Indeed, a rich man comes to him and says, how can I gain eternal life? The man is basically asking, how can I have eternal peace with God? And, and Jesus looks at him and goes, sell all you own and follow me. The guy goes away sad, and Jesus turns to his disciples and goes, foxes have holes, birds have nests, but I'm homeless. He goes, follow me. Man comes to Jesus and, and says, um, he, he asks the same kind of question another way. 
What shall man do to gain eternal life? And he says, follow the commandments, obey the Lord, love the Lord your God, love your neighbor. The guy says, who's my neighbor? <laughs> Jesus goes, you really want to go that route? And he's standing in a city where everybody's racist. And he goes, your neighbor is the racist who hates you. The racist who hates you. That's your neighbor. Story of Good Samaritan, by the way. Good Samaritan, if you, if you just, if you didn't get it, Good Samaritan's neighbor is the guy on the ground that's dying, and he's a racist who hates him. He's a Jewish racist who hates the Samaritans. And it's highly likely that after the Samaritan did all these things to help the guy, the guy would still spit on him and reject him. So, that's the story. Jesus, blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after lying. And then look at what he says to God. And I want you to imagine this is Jesus' voice saying this. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards us. You have multiplied your wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards us. Now, I just want you for a moment to recognize that the author of Hebrews is telling us this is Jesus speaking. Jesus, talking to God, says, You have multiplied your wondrous deeds towards us. Jesus identifies himself as one of us. As part of us. Humbling himself, becoming one of us. And he stands before God and says, You have multiplied your wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards us. The perfect Savior, perfect man, God in the flesh, goes, I'm part of you. I'm identified with you. Doesn't that make you want to follow him all the more? He doesn't say, Lord, we have multiplied our wondrous deeds towards them. He says, Lord, you have multiplied your wondrous deeds towards us. Towards us. And he says, none can compare with you. Take note of the second thing he says there. First, it's towards us. He identifies himself with us. And then he says, none can compare with you. So he highlights this wondrous deeds You've multiplied these wondrous deeds, these actions, these things. And then he doesn't say, none can compare with your deeds. He says, none can compare with you. The deeds are there for one purpose. To lead us to look at him. To lead us to see him. You have multiplied your wondrous deeds 
and thoughts towards us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. You know that the Gospel of John says in chapter 21, verse 25, that if you wrote down everything Jesus did, you wouldn't have enough paper. Not enough paper and ink to record everything he did. He did so much, so many wondrous deeds, you only get a snapshot of them in the gospel. He did so many things. Note, it is not that no one compares to what he does, but it is that no one compares with him. The wondrous deeds of God are manifest in Jesus' works and actions on this earth, and he has multiplied them towards us, towards us, which Jesus identifies. He humbled himself, became a baby, became one of us, and literally became one of us. I think we miss that sometimes when we theologize the sovereignty and greatness of God. We sometimes miss that he was also 100% man. Fully God, fully man, that ancient creed that we believe that Jesus Christ was fully God, fully man. Neither was his divinity, divinity eclipsed by his humanity, nor his humanity eclipsed by his divinity. They were together one. And Jesus empties himself and dies that we might live. Empties himself and dies that we might live. Then verse 6 and following, we see what the author of Hebrews quotes here. In sacrifice and offering, you have not, uh, sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted. But you have given me an open ear. This is an interesting uh, image here. Hebrews, in the Hebrew it says, you have dug my ear out. Dug my ear out. Meaning one of two things. One, I, either he has made it so you can hear by removing the stuff that was in the way. Or this is a reference to Leviticus and the law of how you became a part of the family of God, which was you put your ear next to the doorpost and got it pierced into the, to the doorpost. You got your ear pierced. And it all went through the ear into the doorpost and then came out. So blood was put into the doorpost. And then you were a part of the family. They put a little ring in there that would hold it in place. You know, you have that scar that would identify you as part of the family of God. Now, it's a beautiful picture, and I just want to explain it real quick because, you know, there's not hundreds of you, and I can, and so we're going to. So in Leviticus, when you get pierced against the wall, against the door, I want you to realize what that doorpost was in Exodus. During the Passover, they had this doorpost, and they had to put uh, blood across the top of the doorpost and down the sides. Now, uh, for 2,000 years, this, the image that the priest would do to represent that was this. Check it out. The image the priest would do, about 2,000 years, every Passover, when he started talking about the doorpost, he puts... The blood on the doorpost. 2,000 years you've got the priest of the Old Testament making the sign of the cross, not even recognizing what they're doing. Over and over 
and over. So great was this that there's actually a rabbinical argument against it that the Christians stole this from them. Yes, we did. I don't mind saying that we did because it wasn't theirs to begin with. It's Jesus' symbol, and he's been around since the beginning of time. Anybody stole it? They did. So, there it is, right there. I don't mind saying we stole it after them. Whatever. It's fine. Still get covered by the blood of the Lamb. So, for a thousand years, this is what they would do. So the doorpost becomes this symbol of wood on which the blood is spilled that you would be saved. Now, if you were an outsider, not a Jew who wasn't already covered by the blood of the Lamb, you had to go and say, I want to stay with the Jewish people. I want to stay a Jew. This is more common than you think, and you can notice it by the names that are in the Old Testament. For example, Judge Shamgar. Shamgar is not a Hebrew name. That's not Hebrew. Shamgar is a judge. How does he get to be a Jew? We don't know. It doesn't tell us. Probably through this ritual. Some point, at some point in time, somebody did this. Kenite. Caleb the Kenite. Ken. Not a Hebrew name. Not a Hebrew tribe. Somehow, Caleb the Kenite becomes a part of the tribe, I think, of, uh, of Judah. Somehow gets, I don't remember if it's the tribe of Judah, so if you're quoting me, don't quote me on that part. But he becomes a part of one of the tribes of Israel. How does Caleb the Kenite become part of the tribe, a tribe of Israel? Probably through this ritual. Some Kenite walked up one day and said, I want to be a part of Israel. I want to serve Yahweh. I want to follow Yahweh. He's real. And I believe in him. I'm put my trust in him. And then they say, all right, go to the doorpost of the tribe that you're connected to. Go to the doorpost of the ser- of the people who you have served because you get into the kingdom of the Jews by serving, by indentured servitude. So I don't want to leave. I want to stay a part of the, the people of Israel. So they take your ear and they pierce it against the door and the flesh is pierced against the wood as Christ would be for yours. As Christ would be for yours to give the outsider the entrance into the kingdom. So there's two images here that are given to us in Hebrew. One, dug out my ear. Could mean he gave me the ability to hear. Second, pierced my ear to the door. Bringing me into the kingdom. Both images are beautiful. Both images are true. Because indeed, you have only heard the gospel because Jesus Christ has dug out your ear. Because Jesus Christ has decided that you are going to be redeemed. And two, you have only received the gospel because Jesus Christ has died on your behalf, piercing his flesh to the door for you. On your behalf. That you would be a part of the kingdom. You have given me an open ear. You have dug out my ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. So you see Jesus saying, I have come in the scroll it's written of me. He literally does this, by the way. He stands in front of the people and he reads passages from Isaiah. And he goes, That's me. And then he goes and sits down. And that's how church worked back then. The synagogues 
worked this way. The rabbi would have a sermon, a lot like this, but then people during the worship service would be allowed to walk up, open the Bible, and read a passage of it. And there were sometimes men who were invited to share from the passage. So Jesus is in a town in Luke, and he comes forward, and he stands up, and he opens the Bible, and he reads the passage, and he goes, that's me. Then he walks, and he sits down, and everybody goes, that's Joseph's boy, Joseph's boy, the Messiah, yay! And they're all super excited, and wonder fills them all, is what it says. And then he stands up again, and he ruins it. They're all cheering for him, and he stands up again and goes, half y'all ain't gonna be saved. And he sits back down. That's the John Elkins paraphrase. What he really says is, there were many widows in the time of Zarephath, but only one was saved. And there were many lepers in the time of Naaman, and only Naaman, the enemy of Israel, was saved. And it enrages everyone in the room. That's why I say he messes it up. He doesn't really mess it up. He's doing exactly what he wants to do. That he enrages the room, and everybody gets so furious, they drag him out to a cliff, and they're ready to throw him off. And he goes, not now, guys. And he walks through them. It's one of those amazing pictures in the Bible, where they're getting ready to kill him, and he's like, ah, I'm just going to go this way. And he walks, walks out. A mob, a mob of people ready to throw him off a cliff and then throw stones down on top of him. And he goes, not today. And he just walks through. This is our God, right? So God, he says, Jesus stands and says, it's a scroll, it's written of me, and, and here's what's written. It's, I delight to do your will, oh my God. Your law is within my heart. We see this constantly throughout the Gospels. Jesus saying, I and the Father are one. I don't do anything apart from what the Father tells me to do. I am obeying the Father constantly, even in the garden which we'll talk about in a minute, because I think that there's a reference to that here, but even in the garden, what's he say? Not my, what? Give it to me. Not my will, but yours be done. Right? He is utterly and totally in surrender and in unity with God's will. Verse 9, I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips. As you know, O Lord, I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the congregation. Jesus makes this proclamation openly of God's glory and presence simply by his existence. And indeed, we do too as lesser lights as lamps, we make the same <laughs> proclamation of the gospel. As lesser lights, we proclaim the greater light in Jesus. And Jesus points to the Father and shows his glory and his presence over and over. It does not take long for you reading the gospels to see that he does not hide anything. Jesus was the most real and transparent ever. He didn't need to conceal anything. Indeed, the only thing he ever conceals is the stuff that we can't understand. And those he shows us, he just goes, you're not going to get it. Here. <laughs> Puts it away. Let's look at these things that you can't understand. 
So he goes on in verse 11 and says, As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me. And I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. That is powerful. Jesus bearing the sins of the world. Look at what he says. My iniquities. He took them on himself. He took your sins on himself. He didn't, he didn't take some. He took them all on himself. And he bore them before the Lord as if they were his. Mine. They have surrounded me. I'm overwhelmed. Isn't this the same prayer he prays in the garden? Lord, if there's any other way, that's not a platitude. You think you struggle with stuff at night? With dark feelings or or issues of, of overwhelmed by sin? Like you, you feel like you struggle with that? Look at this prayer. The enemy has encompassed me. It surrounds me. I can't get away. There's no way out. Remind, mind you, he's saying this while he's on the rock. The psalmist is writing this, understanding what he said in verse 2 and 3. Put me on a rock. And yet, feel the weight of this. And recognize that your Savior is not unsympathetic to your pains and your depth of despair and your need. Indeed, if anything, you are unsympathetic towards His. But He knows your difficulty. It is not far from Him. It is not away from Him. He knows. He sees it. He has carried it for you. Oh, what a beautiful Savior who stands before God and says, the iniquities are so great, they are more than the hairs of my head. And I can't even see. I'm drowning here. Oh, Christian, you should know that Jesus knows your difficulty more than you could understand. This is why the Spirit prays in groanings that we don't even know. On our behalf, we groan and the Spirit prays for us. That's because Jesus knows. He knows. He knows. And get this. He still loves you. He knows everything. And still calls you his. Now, I almost don't know what to do with that. Verse 13. 
Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste and help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha, aha. The Lord delivers those who trust in him. Jesus Christ, through his sacrifice on the cross, has delivered us that we might delight and rejoice. And that the adversary who so wants to slay us and destroy the glory of God, this adversary will be put to shame. There's a reality here that we need to grasp and understand, and that is that there comes a day when judgment lands. And in that day, those who have rejected Christ go to hell. There's a day when judgment lands, and it is over. And while we will rejoice at the coming and seeing of our Messiah, there will be many who have said, Aha, aha, in the face of the Lord, and suffer eternal damnation. That is why we must follow Jesus' example in 9 and 10. Do not hide the deliverance of God. Do not conceal the gospel. But speak it, preach it, Pray it, say it to everyone who will listen, and continue to do so, that he would be pleased to deliver, because indeed the Lord is pleased to deliver. As we saw in Hebrews, salvation is his will. My salvation is his will. Your salvation is his will. Indeed, he desires that people would be rescued. Verse 16 and 17 close with this. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. Great is the Lord. Indeed, this is the song that is in our mouths. That we have sought him and we've rejoiced in him. And we're glad in him. And so we sing, Great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. Now, I want to draw your attention to a passage in Luke chapter in closing here. As we've read Jesus' statements and words about salvation and, and wrestling with iniquity and carrying our iniquity to the cross and, and his salvation, there is something that has happened. And he has lifted us up from the miry bog and set our feet on a rock. And, and I have a, uh, a poem for you today about the leper. And John chapter, I mean, in Luke chapter 5, verse 12 through 15, through 16, it says this short passage. I'm going to go ahead and read it. It says, while Jesus was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. 
And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he charged them to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest that's obeying the Levitical law. And make an offering for your cleansing, as Moses commanded, for a proof to them. But now even more, the report about him went abroad and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. So I, I tried to imagine the leper. This is a rather personal poem because, as you know, I like to make the joke that I'm a leper because of my skin issue on my foot. Right. And if I take off my shoe, I like to joke that I have leprosy. It's just. It's just a joke. I don't have leprosy. Though in the Old Testament, that's what this would be called. This is, it's, it's annoying. But it looks like the old pictures that my dad had from Nigeria and Ghana on the mission field of leprosy. Just not as severe. Because I'm not losing toes. So, I imagine the way the leper talked here. And I'm just going to go ahead and read this. My feet hurt. I'm so tired of limping along in this deathly hollow mask of mankind. Each step reminding me of the fire that awaits as my nerves scream in pain. I'm full of something more than a sickness. I'm full of disease unclean and separated from the life I have yet to see that they claim exists in the religious machine. You see, I have walked to the temples, priests, shamans, and nobles. I have stepped in the courts and felt the pangs of disapproval. And I have waited for mercy from men, only to be met with disdain and disgrace and turned away again. No one will touch my skin, cracked and hardened, broken and bloody. Men avert their gaze, hoping I will not speak, at least not to them. Toss a coin or a morsel of bread to the lame, but do not address the shame. Do not lift them from their disdain, and that they must remain. I tried to wash it off, scrubbing it to death. I tried to work it off, laboring to see my my nature incomplete. I tried to walk it off, trudging the great distance to the mountain of God. Now there is blood on my feet. So I walk from shepherd to priest, the honorable dismissing me the least. Still I walk seeking relief. It's a long walk, this walk full of death. My feet hurt. The work of of the fullness of sin, the skin once soft now screams in fury at the world beneath, bleeding, scarred, and rotting, my body rebels against the weight it carries. Full of death, the leper's, pl- the leper's plight, decaying, distraught, wrought with the weight of death's hold, the leprosy that fills my being drags me to my last hope of reprieve. Thus, I fall. I fall on my face before the King of Kings. This desperate act, my only plea, to be emptied. 
to be emptied of the fullness of sin, that all-consuming reality in which I am captive. So I lay myself beneath the Lord, if you will. If desire so sets upon him, if the longing behind the veil matches my own, if the whim of his grace interposed upon me in gentle clemency. There is no misunderstanding here. I fall to my face, begging in recognition of his holiness. He's not obligated to us. Not obligated to reach down to our dust, the makeup of our being. Yet there remains my plea, Lord, empty me. Only you can empty me of death. You can take away the weight of my walk. You can heal my bloody feet. Oh, Lord, I've been walking so long, so far, so slow. Lord, you can make me clean. My feet hurt. I will be clean. His hand stretched out. There was contact. His eyes grabbed my own in which he connect, connected. His voice embraced my ears, which I consider. And his power emptied me of death, completed me of life. My feet hurt no longer. I pray that we would all see the same joy of salvation that the leper saw where his feet hurt no longer 